You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 889 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland. Coming to you on a Sunday evening into Monday, and today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKEDON, and get 20% off your next order with Built Bar. I'll be joined momentarily by Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops, and Glenn's someone that I trust immensely. He is very, very smart with X's and O's, has a coaching background, is a good writer as well, and I learn from talking to him all the time, so I thought it was a good time to have him on the podcast, dive into some nerdy stuff, takeaways for the preseason, etc. after the four games are now in the books. Also, I recorded a recap podcast on Saturday night after the Hawks' final preseason game, which they won but did not play particularly well, so that's still relevant if you want to find that. Also, please subscribe to the podcast. It's a great time to go ahead and do that right now at the start of the season. And if you enjoy the pod, please rate and review the show on your platform of choice. Also, we had a fun week of podcasts last week with Sarah Spencer of the AJC joining me, as well as Josh Lloyd and much, much more. So please, again, please subscribe, please tell a friend, et cetera, et cetera. Before we get to Glenn, there are a couple of newsy items that I want to touch on at the top of the podcast. And first is a reminder of the deadline between the Hawks and John Collins on an extension. So they have until 6 p.m. Eastern time on Monday the 21st, which is probably when you're listening to this right now. And uh, if they do not have an, an agreement in place by then, there is no mechanism to extend John Collins from that point forward. Now, I talked about this a ton in the last several weeks and months, quite frankly, on the podcast. So this is not new to a lot of you. But if the Hawks want to lock John Collins in beyond this year, the way to do that is to extend him. Now, they will have the opportunity to offer him a qualifying offer, and uh, provided that he did not take it, which he probably will not do, um, the Hawks will have him as a restricted free agent at the end of the season if they do not extend him. We'll talk about that all later on once we get the news, but it is just Cliff Notes version. If he does not sign an extension, it's not meaning that he's going to be gone for sure or anything like that. He'll still be under, under team control. But it's a big day on Monday for the Hawks and Collins, so stay tuned for all that. We'll, of course, recap whether they do an extension or not on Monday night. I'll talk about that on the podcast 24 hours from now or so. Um, elsewhere, in the last couple of days, there was an ownership survey done by Mike Vorkanoff of The Athletic. I will not spoil the entire thing. It's, it's behind the paywall of The Athletic, etc., but I thought it was noteworthy that, the, that uh, I would say most of the owners, I would say the vast majority, quite frankly, of NBA governors and owners got votes in this survey for either being the best in the sport or the worst in the sport. But the Hawks ownership got neither, which isn't a terrible thing necessarily, but it's kind of like they're right in the middle. So 11 teams got votes for the worst owner, which the Hawks did not get a vote for. And then 16 franchises got, got votes, at least one, for the best ownership group. And... I'll just say this, you know, granted, I would say being right in the middle is a huge upgrade from the previous ownership group. The Atlanta Spirit was a gigantic disaster, and Ressler's been a huge upgrade on that. It's not just Ressler, too. This is, this is a group. He's not one of those owners that owns the entire team. This is an ownership group. He is the face of it, for sure, and the biggest owner of the team. But it's kind of interesting. That I, th- I thought it was pretty interesting to take that away. I had some Hawks fans upset about that, asking me why the Hawks wouldn't have gotten more love for this. It's still early, is what I'll say about that. Also, they haven't done those like huge splash things just yet. I know locally they're making an impact, for sure, the Hawks are. But a lot of that is not being talked about a ton nationally at this point in time. And again, he's a relatively new owner. This is a relatively new ownership group. And uh, they have not done those high-profile things yet. But again, I would say it's not the worst thing in the world to be kind of anonymous as owners, as governors. Um, 
So don't do anything terrible, and uh, things are going very well. Um, they have money, but to this point, the Hawks have not been asked to pay the luxury tax. That's that's probably the biggest basketball thing that ownership can do in the NBA is be willing to spend money. They've spent money, but they've not had a product yet that's been worthy of the luxury luxury tax. A couple of years from now, that could be a problem. That could be something that you want. That we'll, we'll be talking about on the podcast. Etc. A couple of years from now, um, but they've invested, I would say, in all all kinds of things from the G League franchise to the to the practice facility, etc. Some of that's like kind of happening in between the ownership changeover, which is noteworthy. I'm not going to do a whole deep dive on the ownership group, but they've. Uh, I, I thought it was at least interesting. People asked me about that. My takeaway was like, you know, that's fine. Being in the middle of the pack. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a survey. This is not like a formal thing, but um, not getting votes for best or worst is again a huge upgrade from where they were previously. So not the worst thing in the world there. Um, the other thing that came out is actually another survey that <laughs> dropped over the weekend. That's the annual NBA.com GM survey, where John Schumann of NBA.com polls all of the GMs or at least the representative of the GMs. Uh, so just some takeaways here. Actually, it's a pretty light Hawks thing this time around. There's been times in the past where the Hawks have been more prominently involved, but they were still mentioned in a bunch of categories. Um, the way the GM survey works in terms of the team aspect is that only the top four seeds get voted on in the East and Western Conference. The Hawks got no votes for the top four in the East. It was mostly the top six teams everyone believes that are sort of the top six. Indiana did get at least one vote, so the Hawks definitely are not in the top seven, according to this. Again, it's a small sample size. It's only 30 GMs, etc. The Hawks did finish fourth with uh, among teams on the best offseason moves question, trailing the Lakers, which is kind of strange to me, and the Suns and the Thunder. Um, Bogdanovich got at least one vote for the biggest impact by a new acquisition. Um, Bogdanovich, Dunn, and Rondo got votes for the underrated acquisitions of the offseason. Uh, Kongu got one of seven. He was one of seven players that got a vote, at least one vote, in the rookie as the best player in five years category. He did not finish in the top five, though. It was him and Obi Toppin were six and seven in some order there. Um, Skylar Mays got one vote at least for steal of the draft, which is always a fun question to go ahead and monitor. Um, Rajon Rondo was second in the voting behind Chris Paul in the player most likely to be a head coach. Uh, or I guess the best head coach someday between the uh, between the active NBA players. The Hawks tied for third in the best young core discussion behind the Pelicans and the Grizzlies. And then uh, the only thing that I wanted to point out that was kind of silly in a negative way was that Trey Young got no votes for best passer, which I, I think is kind of insane. Um, I will say I'm not sure he, he would be my vote for the absolute number one best passer, but he's definitely a top five guy. There are more than five guys that got votes. So interesting on that. But alas, um, again, no huge massive, you know, windfall news kind of items on this on this time around. Often GM Surgery makes some news, and I'm sure a lot of other teams got content out of that. But alas, if that's available on NBA.com, if you want to find it, John Schumann tweeted it out. John does a good job over at NBA.com. So that's available if you want to dive further. But that's all I got on that for now. Okay, before we get to Glenn, a word from our sponsors on today's podcast, and the first of which is betonline.ag. The NFL season is coming to an end in the near future, and the playoff picture is becoming much more clear, and there's only one place that has you covered and one place that we trust, and that's betonline.ag. You can sign up today for a free account on betonline.ag and use the promo code LOCKEDON for 50% welcome bonus. And on top of the fantastic opening night and Christmas Day slates in the NBA, as well as bowl season and all kinds of college football playoff content, 
Week 16 of the NFL season is also coming up this week, and there are fun matchups to handicap from the Vikings and the Saints to Colts to Steelers, Rams, Seahawks, and even the Atlanta Falcons taking on Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Beyond that, there's a full menu of offerings from Bet Online on any sport that you can think of. They have player props, live wagering, futures, exotics offerings, and much, much more. Do not sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on the action. And don't forget to use the promo code LOCKEDON to receive that 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit with betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Today's podcast is also brought to you by 1010. Now, you may have read about it in the New York Times or Forbes, and we're excited to tell you about it also. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. Using only diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful commitment ring launching exclusively on January 18th at BlueNile.com. When they're gone, they're gone. We all know that the diamond engagement ring is iconic. It's a timeless expression of the deepest commitment between two people. And with 1010, it's beautifully re-envisioned in the hands of 10 modern designers working exclusively with sustainably sourced diamonds. If you're making 2021 plans or looking for a unique and meaningful way to celebrate Valentine's Day this year, you're definitely going to want to check this out. This exciting limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings launches on January 18th. You can preview it exclusively at BlueNile.com. One more time, that is BlueNile.com. I am joined now by Glenn Willis, resident X's and O's expert at Peachtree Hoops. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm ready for the season to get going. I I think I think I'm ready. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm excited for the festivities uh, to begin and uh, league activities that actually include the Hawks. Looking forward to that. Yeah. So we're recording Sunday night. The Hawks are done in the preseason. They played four games. There were pluses. There were minuses. Uh, it was not always pretty, as preseason basketball is uh, not always great. And I've tried to get people not to overreact to the preseason, but that's always a failing effort, as you know. Uh, it's not going to stop anyone from doing it. It's just worth saying out loud. Um, so I guess our mission today is to talk about some stuff that you could actually maybe take away or that you observed from the preseason. I, I want to start with the offense, then we'll go to the defense a little bit later. And uh, in typical podcast fashion, I will start with the biggest name and ask you what you thought of Trey Young in the preseason. Obviously, his numbers were not as good as they usually are. Uh, I saw some people, uh, I wouldn't say panicking, but at least worrying aloud about Trey, which I, I am not. But w- what did you observe from Trey and the the offense now that um, he actually has more guys around him now? Well, I think you can tell that he knows that he needs to operate a little differently and that he's still adjusting to that. And, and there's been, we all know how much roster turnover, turnover there was how many new pieces there are, uh, how many more actual NBA players he has to play with this year. Uh, and that means, um, you know, the last couple of years, he's largely needed to step up and really own as much usage as he could handle and tolerate. Um, you know, on the flip side of that, that, that means there's only so much you could expect of him, like defensively, for example. And that's just not the situation coming in to this year. Um, now, we collectively can't really go overboard with that because he's one of the I don't want to sit here and do a <laughs> a mental list of like is he top one of the top 10 offensive players in the league is he one of the top five or what have you he's one of the top uh, offensive players in the league one of the top offensive creators in the league so I'm not worried about him but I do think um from from the way I watch games that I see him dealing with uh, a lot of expectations and maybe some guardrails of sorts that he didn't really have put on him in previous seasons. So a couple of what a couple of examples of what that might be. One is they obviously need to reduce turnovers. 
Um, and uh, in some at some moments in the preseason, you saw him kind of simplify what he was doing. At other times, you saw him throw wild passes that worked <laughs> a little more often in previous seasons. Uh, but it's like these new, more veteran, more experienced players are like, uh, yeah, we don't we don't throw passes like that. This is an actual <laughs> NBA team now, you know, and things like that. And then also, there I have observations on uh, him. By my observation, being asked to get back and kind of own being the first guy back in transition defense. And so I think he just has more on his mental plate and just needs some time uh, to acclimate that. But uh, I'm not worried about him at all. Uh, I know we're going to get into scheme stuff a little bit later on. There's some stuff in in there that's factoring in. Uh, But I just think he's been asked to take on a broader set of responsibilities, um, which is not a surprise, I don't think. Uh, and that he's just acclimating to having to think about and uh, and mentally track a larger number of variables that he had in year one or year two, and it didn't look great. Um, the one caveat I guess I would have to that around his struggle to make shots in these four games goes back to a conversation I know you and I have had before is that I don't think fans understand how instrumental Vince Carter was to him um, kind of finding his NBA shot and finding his confidence and, and more than anything, kind of figuring out what footwork was going to, was going to really work for him. And now obviously Vince, not, Vince is not around the team anymore. I would hope that those, that was sort of a training period and that's something he doesn't necessarily need, but it's, it's in the back of my mind. So mostly I think he's fine. He's just, I think, it, you know, accounting for many more variables where they kept it pretty simple for him in year one, year two. Yeah, I think that's, that's all right. And uh, you know, obviously it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. It's really hard to figure out what is preseason and what is not across the board, but especially with guys like Trey, who they're clearly trying to do a little bit different um, approach on offense, and that, that makes sense. He was never going to have the same level of usage this season just give, just because of who's around him. You still want to have him be the guy. He still will be the guy. I think he will have the ball in his hands more. When the lights come on on Wednesday, um, I think that they'll probably run more spread, more spread pick and roll than they did in the preseason, which is his real strength right now. They didn't do a whole lot of that at all in the preseason, at least that I saw. And that's something that you can sort of get to to make him more comfortable. But I think I, I agree with what you said, where they put a lot on his plate. He's been asked to sort of you know be a um, facilitator. Obviously, he, he's always a facilitator, but keeping the trains running on time is a different task than um, being the one and only really creator that he was last season. So he'll find that balance. At the same time, though, I saw some people talking about his shooting percentages. They were not good. I know he shot 33% from the field in the preseason. I don't care about that. The only thing that I observed and said this on the podcast before is that his floater game has is just not there yet for, for whatever reason right now. But he's so good in that, I don't really worry about it at all. It's just that that was a big part of what wasn't happening for him, I thought, as a scorer in the four games that we've seen so far. And his three-point shooting is just going to be what it is. He'll always take the uh, some tough ones, take some deep ones. He'll make a lot of them. I don't worry about that at all. Um, do you, I guess this is sort of a final, we, we transition out of this a little bit as well, but um, do you think that, I guess before the preseason started versus now, what's your overall expectation for what he's going to be asked to do like, what's the baseline for you? Is, is it going to be more of a facilitator this year for obvious reasons? Um, like, I don't know about numbers, but I've, I've been saying that I think he will not score quite as much. He's still going to score a lot. But what's your overall sort of baseline for what you think is, it's going to look like for Wednesday and beyond, I guess? 
Yeah, I, I do think the scoring will probably come down a little bit, mostly just because they have more viable scores on this yeah. roster. Um, I know there there's something to um, keeping guys that are used to getting shots and used to scoring, uh, keeping them involved enough and giving them enough opportunities to keep them happy and 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 keep the the team and the different line of chemistry in the in the same spot. So. Um, but what I'm most curious to see that was really never going to be possible for us to see the preseason is when the offense gets bogged down, do they just kind of ride Trey? I mean, almost every team, including the best teams, tend to just put the ball in their best players' hands when things just are kind of have completely broken down. And that's something we've seen, you know, the last few years with Trey is just put him in that high pick and roll, like like you mentioned. And and so I think it'll be more of a game to game thing, and we might see him, you know, scoring, you know, pushing, you know, north of thirty points in games like he has in, in past years when things aren't working well for whatever reason. And then in other games, you might see him only get say a dozen shots, uh, but see you know more distribution of shots and and points across the lineup. But but what I, what I think that means mass wise at the end of the year is that he's probably scored you know fewer points per game. Um, uh, than he did in previous years, uh, but I'll still, I know a bit of your thunder that you've written about and talked about is that I think the assists go up um, just because he, there are more shot makers on this team. Um, some of that might be tied to, uh, you know, how much the high of the high pick and roll do they keep? I mean, we, he ran so little of that in the preseason, yep. and I don't even remember a single double drag pick and roll, which has been their staple. Well, it's kind of here. In his rookie year, they ran a, a lot of horns-based action, and last year it was double drag, and that was just because they had a different center makeup. I know you know that. <laughs> I could talk for ten minutes about that, but that's a different podcast, probably. Um, but but it, you know, so many of his assists, and then you talked about the floater as well. I think the reason the floater is off, from what I've seen, is um, you know he's used to taking a lot, carrying a lot of velocity toward the rim and his floater opportunities typically he'll have a his his guy will be trailing him over a screen and he'll carry a lot of velocity in toward the paint and toward the rim and because he's not running high pick and roll he just doesn't have as much runway and he's not carrying as much velocity into his floater so he, i think he just has a different um you know kind of calibration to hit carrying less velocity in and so you know um there's little techniques he uses to decelerate with that floater that is incredible. Now, come you know, come their first game in Chicago, we might see him run, you know, 20 to 25 of those, you know, high pick and roll or double drag base, and he, we might see him carrying a lot of velocity into those floaters and stuff, and we're like, oh, okay, there it is, you know. Or it just might be different because of you know how many different kind of moving pieces they have this year. But I think you and I are on the same page, and that that probably means uh, he scores two to three points fewer per game and that his assists might go up by one, one and a half a game is, it would be my guess in terms of what his workload and statistical output looks like. Yeah, that's about what I'm guessing as well. And obviously the offense, um, everything feeds into, you know, the same formula in some respects, but he's of course the sun and the moon and the stars. That's, that's not going to change necessarily. There's just going to be a lot more around him. And one of the questions coming in, of course, is the Collins and Capella 
pairing, especially on offense. I want to ask you about the defense later as well. But offensively, there were times that I observed, and I'm not the X's and O's person that you are, but I observed those guys um, figuring it out, um, having to sort of feel their way through things, Capella being in the way a couple times, Collins trying to figure out where he's going to be a couple times. And it's not like Collins has never played with a big man before. He has. But Capella, I think, almost has the tougher job of the two, which is kind of contrary to what you might think. Collins um, is so good at so many things offensively, but Capella has to feel the whole system out himself, as well as getting his own legs back. He's not necessarily been at full strength, in my view, physically so far as well. But I say all that just to ask you, like, what have you thought about that offensive period? I know it's just it's way too early. This is the same thing for all of this stuff. But what did you make of what you saw in that limited sample? Yeah, I, I do think it's still clunky at, at this point. And I think there's I, I agree with you that the bigger adjustment is for Capella. And I'll get into that here in a minute. Um I think what Collins has to deal with is the way that Gallo, um, when in Collins, Gallo played together a lot in the preseason. Yeah. We'll see if that carries over. And that might, that might um, carry over, especially if a Kongwu misses a little bit more time. They don't seem sure. to want to go to Bruno a lot, so you might see more of Collins and Gallinari together. Yeah, for for sure. And and they're a, a absolutely nasty offensive pairing for as, sure. as the two positions. But um, you know when. Capella's on the court. Collins is going to have basically the above the break space to work, almost regardless of what they're running. And I, I interested to know if if you see this too, but Collins looked looked a little hesitant to pull his shot from above the break in the preseason, um, where last year he was just letting it fly, and he you know obviously had a really really good shooting season last year. And then when Gallo comes on the court to play with Collins, Gallo wants that above the break space. And we've seen Collins take a couple shots from the corner, and he gets kind of pushed down into the corner. Now, I mean, the maybe one of the really good aspects of this is that Collins is about as agreeable of a, of a player, especially one who can put up the kind of numbers he does, as there probably is in the league. He'll do whatever his team needs him to do. He'll do whatever he's asked. Um, that might change, uh, especially if an extension's not agreed here in the next uh I forget the exact deadline, next, and I don't know when this is going to go up. Monday, but, it's going, um, this is going up tomorrow. Yeah, just just to say that out loud, <laughs> we, you and I are recording this on Sunday on Sunday evening. I actually talked about this before I brought you in, but the deadline is Monday at six. If people are listening to this after that deadline, you already know. But the deadline is Monday p Monday six p.m. Eastern time, so we're less than twenty four hours away. Yeah, I, I think the general belief is that you know every day, and now I guess we're down to every hour. It doesn't happen. It becomes less likely. That's just kind of how life works, I guess. Um, but I, I, you know, it will be interesting to see if the impending free agency kind of changes that volume and of uh, you know, agreeableness that Collins just tends to play with. Um, it's one of the reasons I like him as a player. Probably think easy to root for. Um, is he'll just do kind of whatever you know needs to be done. Uh, so for for Collins, it's almost kind of flipping you know the space he has to work with when he's on with Capella versus Gallo. For for Capella. It, the really tricky part for me is this um, when he played in Houston with uh, James Harden, obviously um, Harden, as we all know, possessed the ball for long periods of time. Um, they ran a more, a more static offense. That's not to mean that there's not um, you know, modern aspects to it and stuff, but they gave Harden, as we all know, a lot of free reign to kind of probe and fill out a possession and things like that. And that typically allows Capella to know exactly where Harden wanted him. The primary difference in what Atlanta does, even if they replicate the offense they ran last year, which would include for Trey, a lot of high pick and roll, a lot of double drag action, um, 
what the Atlanta offense is based on flipping the floor strong side to weak side back to strong side and kind of moving the ball back and forth and catching the defense over helping um, and things like that. And what that means is that Capella is going to have to move from one side of the, of the baseline, like if he's in the dunker spot to the other side, to the other side conceivably and come up with a completely different calculation for him than in Houston. Houston, he could set up and basically stay where he's set up and that worked fine. But the Hawks, if he's not in the primary action, he's still kind of guessing at where's the best spot for me to set up. And that is that, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how long it takes for him to acclimate to that. Now, what's encouraging is that he's a helpful player. Like he's always looking to do something helpful. Can I set a screen here? Can I get in, uh, you know, another defender's way there or things like that. So it's not like he's going to, stand around and not do anything, but it, it's, a, it's a completely different thing for him to account for the way that the Hawks like to flip strong side, weak side, back to strong side again. It's going to be a moving target for Capella. We'll, we'll see how they, the coaching staff kind of helps him get that settled, but it's still still very clunky at this point, I think. Yeah, they have some work to do there, and that was always going to be the case, and it, it makes it even harder that Capella is not himself yet physically, which is to be expected. He's not played basketball even longer than all of these guys have been plus he had the injury recovery he was still rehabbing over the summer etc so he's got a lot of stuff going on in his mind I will say that um before I ask you about some other schematic stuff offensively then we'll move on to the defense I want to hear from our sponsors on today's podcast and the first of which is Built Bar I've been telling you for a long time that Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, and that is still very much the case, but also the new and improved Built Bar is even more delicious. The original flavors are fantastic and they continue to be so, but now there are 18 amazing flavors to choose from, including new selections like caramel brownie, lemon almond cheesecake, and of course my personal favorite, in cookies and cream. Each bar is covered in 100% chocolate, and they're all soft and easy to chew, which is also very important to point out. And from there, I should remind you that Built Bar is also fantastic. For those of us trying to be health conscious, you can maintain or even lose weight while still enjoying something that's absolutely delicious. Bars are low calorie, high protein, low sugar, and high fiber. And Built Bar is even great if you're on the keto diet with all the nutrients you need. And again, a taste that puts other competitors in the space to absolute shame. In order to check it all out, BuiltBar.com is the place to go. Yes, it's BuiltBar.com right now. And use the promo code Locked On when you get there. When you visit BuiltBar.com and use that promo code, you'll get 20% off your next order with Built Bar. One more time, that is BuiltBar.com. Promo code Locked On for 20% off your next order. Check it all out at BuiltBar.com and try Built Bar today. All right, Glenn. Um... I want to ask you, I guess just put the ball on your court a little bit here. Is there anything that, that you've noticed schematically, offensively, that's got your eye or any player performance? I will just sort of open the floor to you uh, that we haven't talked about yet, just because there's a lot that we could go through, and you and I could probably talk for two hours, but what's sort of that top of mind for you offensively before, before you go to the defense? Yeah, so so the main thing for me is all of the off-ball stuff. And we, we talked about some of, some of the trays play up front. I think the one thing we didn't hit on there – when you when we think about why go away from the pick and roll is uh, as I think you and I know, but maybe all, all all of your listeners don't necessarily know that Trey statistically last year was one of the three, four, five, five of the most best uh, sh- three point shooters off the catch last year, yep. and the, they re- they did very little to kind of maximize that in terms of you know sets they run and things like that, and so. In, in terms of you know, trying to figure out how to maximize trade, there there understandably needs to be more of that, um, and so you, you saw some of that there. Um, but um, the big thing was the complete elimination of double drag high screen 
Now, the, the double drag stuff I saw was from the side, like a free throw line extended, and it was typically a guard and a big help setting a side double drag for a wing. I know that was a lot of like terminology there, but <laughs> that's basically the opposite of point guard high, high double drag screen roll. Um, and then, but what's the most interesting to me that I think is, is probably going to end up being the most profound new stuff they're running is what I look at as Doc uh, Rivers material in the Clippers, especially after they acquired Lou Williams, things he ran for him. And then the last couple of years, I know that some Hawks fans don't even hear the name, but things Carlisle's been doing for Luca in Dallas, which is to bring a wing from a corner off of one or two screens up towards the top of the floor. Um, so that's basically successive off screens with the wing lifting and then using a pitch back between the point guard and the wing to either let the wing get set up or the point guard set up to then transition into high pick and roll. And that's where I think we're going to see the high pick and roll start to grow back for Trey. Um, that throws a lot more moving parts. It's a lot harder to trap for defense to trap in that kind of setup um, because they have to cover the entire, you know, basically the entire half court and not just kind of push everyone up towards a high pick and roll. So I, you know, that's the stuff that I, I see is if you want to go on YouTube and Google, I'm sorry, Google search for <laughs> um, strong action or away action, you'll see that that's the setup that they're using. And then in some cases you'll see that pitch back and go straight to a high pick and roll. That's the stuff that I'm, I'm most interested in. And, and then um, I, you know, we didn't see really much of an ATO package. And so yeah. I'm naturally interested in that to see if they continue doing what they're doing um, and stuff. But I, I think that, I think Trey's going to get a lot of that Lou Williams, Luka Doncic-like um, more sophisticated setup into the high pick and roll. I think we saw only a little bit of that in the preseason. I expect that we'll start to see a lot of that. So that's what caught my eye the most, even though I think we'll see like 10 times as, as much volume once the regular season starts as we did the preseason. Yeah, I'll be really intrigued about the ATOs as well. And just the fact that, I don't know, you have to know that they're holding stuff back for the regular season. Every coach is going to do that. They, they definitely wanted to, they, they just did some stuff, especially defensively, that we'll get into in a second, that was that Pierce even admitted was just to do it and have it on film, um, like playing zone for a little bit against Memphis. That's one example. But offensively, they probably have some stuff that they're, that they're, that they're going to hold back as well. So it'll look different, I am sure. Um, also, the urgency of you know needing to perform early on is intriguing to me because if they're struggling out of the gate offensively, there is that you know default they can go to of just running a lot more pick and roll with Trey, and they probably don't want to do as much of that as last year. But it, it's going to be more. I mean, I'll, I'll be surprised. I'll say if it's not a lot more of that when the game counts on Wednesday than it was in the preseason. I think they had yeah. they, they can afford to do that in the preseason and just sort of tinker with it. But they almost have to run more high, high pick and roll just to be more effective. <laughs> they, they do, and I mean, it's sort of at the thirty thousand foot level almost. Uh, they need to be a top 10 offense this year to achieve their goals. I think, I think that's Agreed. probably a consensus agreement and they're not going to do that. If Trey is averaging 14 and seven, <laughs> they're just, no. it's just not going <laughs> to happen. So you have to feature him in action that, um, you know, that um, accentuates what he can do, what he can leverage to put him in, into um, situations where he can absolutely put his full set of skills and talents to practice. And we all know that's high screen and roll. I, and that's why I think the real tweak is a more sophisticated setup into that pick and roll. And I think that they were doing a whole lot of stuff just to 
kind of get a feel for all the different ways you can set up and then transition into that pick and roll, which gives the defense more to think about than just, hey, let's up to trap Trey. And so that's, I think you're exactly right. We'll see more of it. If the setup's just the setup and the transition into it's just going to be a little bit different than last year, I think. Yeah, and I, I know you'll be writing about it. I know Graham will be too, and others at yep. Street Hoops when it's when it happens. So keep an eye out for all of that written content as well as uh, the occasional video that Glenn will narrate, which I always enjoy as well. So check those out. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's go to defense real quickly now. So this is the end of the floor that is much more concerning in a broad way for the Hawks. It's also the area in which I would say gets a lot more attention right now because the default on offense is that they might be pretty good this season, given all the talent they have. But defensively, it's obviously a uh, a mixed bag uh, talent-wise, and also the recent track record for this team has not been good defensively. So same same sort of drill. I have a couple of things I want to ask you about specifically, but I will open it up to you first. W- what did you notice that st- stood out to you defensively in these first four games? Um, because obviously there were some encouraging moments, but a lot of it was not fantastic because it's the preseason and they're just trying to get stuff figured out. Yeah, so the the thing that surprised me the most defensively was just how much the coaching staff threw at the team. Um, now, um, you know, we, we were we kind of saw what they did last year with the roster that they had, which we were, they were pretty limited in the number of things that they could do. But they, you know, like last year, one example, they ran more zone across as the season progressed. Right, we saw more of that as an example. Um, but, but this year, I mean, this, this preseason, we saw, um, a whole lot of different, uh, switching, um, different rules based switching, uh, for example, uh, for ball screens between a five and the four, they like always switch those, I believe. Yep. And I'm not, I'm not gonna give you the whole inventory, don't worry. <laughs> no, but um, it, 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 the, the overall point of how much they did, uh, differently was interesting to me. And that's not, that's a someone who... I'm not someone who spots these things live in real time like you do, and I was noticing. So yeah, and then uh, like a, they will often on the side switch a big and a wing, uh, and they'll, then they'll look for opportunities to switch back. The the um, follow up I wrote on Game Four um, highlighted some of some of that that Solomon Hill and Kevin Herter did, um, and then on high pick and rolls, we saw. Um, a lot of like against Orlando, we saw a lot of weaking action, which is basically just pushing the ball handler towards their non-dominant hand. Didn't see any of that really that I noticed against Memphis. They were uh, dropping and trailing um, uh, against Memphis on high high screen rolls, but they were pulling in um, the, the peripheral defenders in closer to the paint and crease, especially that second game versus Memphis with, with the Yeah, they were really, they were really off. walling off against Memphis and that game on Saturday, they were really like overemphasizing the paint. Yeah. There's there, there's a reason they gave up uh, like I think ninety eight three point shots in the two games or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um but you know I, I'm sure that the coaching staff is like we're building this defense in phases and in so step one or step one and two is um, you know, they were the worst in the league in terms of giving up points to the paint last year. And so that is sort of, you know, problem number one to fix is let's correct that. And then once we have that corrected, then let's uh, find a way to improve the way we defend the three-point line. And, and um, you know, I think I think most NBA coaches, if they were really truthful in a normal season, they would say they'd love to have their defense kind of stabilized by January 1. But it, it's a... It's a you know, a full two months of work to get, you know, the second and third phase of what they're doing into place, unless you have just a ton of continuity player-wise and coaching staff-wise and such. Um, but, but this year, I think everyone's time uh, 
calendars are off. Like, well, what is what, what is the expectation this year? That's when we're starting on December twenty second. I'm going to guess by February one or something like that. And so, if the Hawks are giving up a ton of three point shots the first, you know, say fifteen games of the season, I don't think that's anything to be terrified about. So long as they're doing a much better job of defending the rim and and defending the paint. So the big takeaway to me was that. I mean, they threw a lot of different coverages, a lot of different schemes at the team in the four games that they played, which tells me that Lloyd Pierce, maybe for the first time as head coach of the Hawks, wants to bring wants to bring his full defensive bag of tools and schemes, and maybe even change what they're doing game to game uh, across the season and use some of the versatility this roster offers. Where in the past he was really, really handcuffed in terms of what he could do with the roster she's had. So just the the variety of scheme and coverage was kind of shocking to me that to do in such an abbreviated preseason. Yeah, and Pierce has made the comment, and I know fans have really not enjoyed that comment, but he, he talked about the fact that they've not been able to put in their whole defense. And, you know, that's something that I understand the reaction to not being fantastic after two seasons. At the same time, the personnel was not not good and also very young. Um, this time they have, they're still young, but they have more vets. Um, they have the same guys who have been around for multiple seasons now. And just by proxy, that should allow them to do a little bit more to install and have these guys mentally process everything a little bit better. Now, physically, they have to be able to execute, and that's something different. And that's, I think you've heard, uh, I, I played some audio, and obviously I've heard this even more than everybody else has. Pierce has been really consistent talking about the no paint mentality. That's the quote that he keeps using is no paint mentality. And you've seen that a little bit. Now, Allowing, allowing a ton of threes, it can be volatile. Um, that was the problem with my Budenholzer defense back in the day. And they were really good on defense back then, by the way, with Paul Millsap and Al Horford, etc. But their one Achilles heel was that they would get beat up on threes. And that's, that's the same thing that has happened to Bud in Milwaukee. Now, you, you would take that, though, given what Atlanta has, because those teams were always good around the paint. And you can lose games. Obviously, it's frustrating on a night when teams make shots. Like Saturday night against Memphis... You got guys like D'Anthony Melton raining threes on you, and you know, part of that's that they're open, and part of that, that you know, it's, it's just going to happen sometimes. The randomness will get back to, you, and the math doesn't always win in a single game sample. But they have to try to do something well, and so far, like last year, they didn't they didn't do a whole lot well. Um, and if they can just figure it out and maximize and use their personnel in a way that they think is probably the best to take away the paint. Allowing threes might be frustrating, but if they do one thing well, and that one thing is taking away the paint. That's a success on some level, especially when, you know, I think if you gave this coaching staff true serum, they would admit this is not going to be an elite defense. They have to figure out how to make this defense average or, you know, passable in a way they haven't been before. They're not going to say that out loud, but I think if you had them, you know, off the record, true serum wise, they would admit that. So it's kind of the baseline you're looking for. This is still an offensive personnel team. And you have to figure that out and scheme around it because, as we talked about, sort of in and around this interview already and previously, the personnel is not, it's still not great. It's better than it has been defensively, but it's not like, it's not exactly what you would draw up in a lab, per se. Yeah. And there's two reactions I have to that. Um, one is you talk about giving the Hawks coaching staff truth serum, totally, totally factual. But uh, at the same time, uh, Lloyd Pierce is probably as transparent as any coach in the league when it comes to talking about what he's done and what yeah, the issues are. He is. And when he says we, he'll say we haven't installed the whole defense when very few other coaches might be that transparent about it. You know, you, in Bud's tenure, you got so here, tired of hearing him say, we just need to be better. And you, if you had a dollar for every time Bud said we need to be better. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing with Pierce is, 
I, I'm glad I said that, and it was truthful. It was refreshing, but and this is something that I, I appreciate about Pierce is that I'm sure he knew when he said that it wasn't going to be well received. And a right. lot of a lot of the fan reaction was like, oh, "Wait, are you kidding me?" And it's like, "Well, no, he's just being honest, and that you could they couldn't do everything that they that they want to do. You know, these guys right. are not stupid. They know what they can and can't implement. And obviously, you know, some coaches are better than others. I'm not going to tell you that Pierce is perfect, but him saying that he knew what the reaction was going to be, and he still said it anyway because he meant it. You know what I mean? For for sure. And then the the other part of getting their defense to be uh, good enough or passable. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of that comes down to, and this might not be what fans want to hear or see, but, you know, I made it, I've made comments that, you know, it felt like all, let's say 95% of the good defensive possessions they had in the preseason were when Solomon Hill was on the court. And so, you know, do you want Solomon Hill to play, what, 20 to 25 minutes a game to help bring that veteran a really grounded defender whose technique is perfect and who communicates well and who's like super invested there at the expense of whose minutes. It's going to cost someone else minutes that the fans probably are not going to want to see lose you know, five minutes from that player, maybe five minutes from player B or, you know, whatever. And so that's it, going to be a decision that uh, coach Pierce has to make along with his coaching staff is, you know, I feel like their best, path to winning as many games say the first 10 to 20 games of the season is a pretty heavy dose of Solomon Hill on the court for at least stretches of games um, but you know whose minutes do you cut to open up that playing time for him so you know yeah the, the there are more options there are more pieces um, but you know comes with the territory you have a, a better roster you have a deep deeper roster now now you have another problem set to work on and how do you you know divide up playing time in a way that hopefully top priority is helps you pursue wins and the secondary priority is, you know, keeping people reasonably happy. Yeah. And we've also seen this staff, you know, put a guy out there like on purpose to stabilize the defense. And that was with Vince Carter. Now Vince Carter was not a great defender by any means individually, but you would see Lloyd and the staff go to Vince in late game defensive possessions because Vince knows where to be and he would tell guys where to be and direct traffic. And Solomon Hill is a better defender right now than Vince was at that point. But you might see that. And it might seem weird to people because Solomon Hill is like, you know, not a highly paid guy. He's on a non-guaranteed contract. I like Solomon Hill a lot, and he would help their defense. I think you've probably already seen that. It's just that that trade-off is what they have to figure out. And actually, it's sort of a good bridge to one of the questions I want to ask you. You know, I've made a lot about Capella helping the defense. I think he's going to. You probably have already seen that on some level. But my question to you is. How how worried are you, A, and uh, B, how would you handle this? What happens defensively when Capella's off the court? And they can, they can, they can put these offensive laps on the court. We, we talked about this earlier with Gallinari and Collins. That's an awesome offensive front court. Um, but not, that's not even the only example. Like Basically right now, especially without a Kongwu available, right now Capella is the only above-average um, rim protector slash you know, defensive big man they have available. Collins is getting closer to average defensively. He's been improving, but Capella to everybody else available right now, especially in this in this Noah Kongwu world, is a pretty big drop off. You know, Capella is not going to play that much. I think he'll probably play somewhere in the high twenties per minute minutes per game. That's that's a lot, but there's still 15, 17, 18 minutes per game without him. How do they handle that, and can they handle that? I guess. Yeah, that that's one of the reasons that I was a little surprised at the Deadman trade was just because of how how nice it would be to have one more. 
experienced guy, you know, providing depth at that roster spot. Um, I know they wanted to add shooting and, um, and they probably, I don't remember the exact order of the transactions and stuff, but it, it was a, a broader plan for the offseason and, and stuff, what have you. But I was going to um, say, but, but before you go in, I, I'm skeptical. I don't know this. I wonder if they would have done the Deadman trade if they knew they were going to get Bogdanovich. Um, because, you know, Snell is still a useful player. He's, I know he's hurt right now, so it's outside out of mind. I know you like, I like, I know you like Snell as well. You wrote about him when they traded for him. But I do wonder if they knew they were going to get Bogdanovich and Solomon Hill, if they would have done the Deadman trade. I'm not sure if they would have. Yeah, I mean, I like Snell as Me too. just in, in a vacuum as a guy to put around Trey. You want low usage, good shooters, good team defenders, and he just kind of checks those boxes. Now, if he if he plays a ton this year, something went wrong somewhere at yeah. the same time. Injuries, you know? injuries. Most, I mean, especially with, with this late start from Snell and the right. injury, and that, that's not what you could have foreseen. But yeah, it'll be a big surprise if he is in the rotation without injuries ahead of him. And, and by the way, yeah. he's he's a rotation caliber player. That, that wouldn't be the end of the world, but I don't think it's going to happen necessarily. Right, and it's it's nice if he does stay on the roster the entire season. Who knows? They might want to. I think there's been some discussion, at least offline, with you know folks that you and I talk with about might they want to add one more you know big you know for depth and are, is the roster right now a little wing heavy? Um, possibly, you know we don't really know. Um, but nothing looks apparent um, in terms of if you look at which contracts are guaranteed and, and such, all that sort of stuff. But it's just something you, I think some of us are curious about. But in terms of the original question about what can they do when Capella's off the court? Is there anything they can do? Um, this, for me, goes back to whether you view, for example, last year, defensive issues as being a roster and talent issue or more so an organization issue. And by organization, I mean the way you get organized on the court, not the basketball organization. And for me, yeah, I mean, they didn't have enough good defenders last year. Um, they were never going to be probably have any path of getting out of the bottom 10 in the league defensively. Um, but their biggest issue across the whole season for me, at least was they would start games just completely unorganized on that end of the court. Um, and, and it's really hard in an NBA setting. If you start a game unorganized defensively to find a path back to getting organized with, you know, all the rotations and the, you know, you're, you know, almost done the end of the first quarter and he's got, you know, four starters on the bench maybe or what have you. And I, th I think that's what Capella gives them, you know, prime in, in the form of his primary value they didn't have last year was he's an organizer, he's a connector, he's a communicator. And it's always, I think, best when, if that person is your center, you know, defensive anchor, we hear that term that for, for a reason. Um, and I think that he's going to help them get organized to start a game. I, I, uh, Additionally, to kind of go back to what we talked about before, I don't think uh, Lloyd Pierce would have thrown as much at his team defensively if they didn't have Capella in all four of these games. Because Capella, I think he trusts him to get them organized whatever they're running schematically for whatever you know stretch of any game. Now, when, if they can start organized, if when Capella goes to the bench, whether it's Gallo and JC manning the four and the five, whether you know Bruno's going to have to play some early this season... Um, we don't really know how ready a Congo is to handle, you know, real crunch time minutes um, at all. And so, but at least if you can start organized, you have a chance of remaining organized, yep. e even once you're, you know, starting defensive maker goes to the bench. And, you know, I've been impressed with 
the communication like we've seen from Collins and even Collins and Gallinari have had excellent communication. Now they have, you know, individual liabilities defensively. Uh, you know, Collins just isn't very big and Gallo is just quite slow. Yeah. He's just not very mobile. I mean, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, I've been saying the whole times about Gallinari that he's not a good defender and he's not, but right. one of the things that you're saying there is one of his strengths is that he knows where to be. Gallinari right. is a professional player he knows where to be he'll execute he'll talk it's just that he has physical limitations but if 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 a lot of it and you're right to say this a lot of it is just kind of knowing what's going on that is a strength of Gallinari's to where yeah a Gallinari Collins front court or Gallinari at the five which which we saw without Collins the other night that isn't going to be great just because of his limitations but he will get the guys in the right place I'd imagine yeah and then the other thing is that people are going to think I'm like you know being silent and he'll drum but (laughs) You know, well, Capella's off the court. Solomon Hill's probably their next best organizer. Yeah, on that in the court, and, and you know, he's also fam- famously loud as well. According to according to every yeah. according to everything, uh, I could hear him the other night when I was there. He is not a not, <laughs> not, not a quiet gentleman by any means. Well, and to give you another example, I mean, this is a little bit different, but it's it works at least the parallel works for me. Hopefully, it'll work for you and the listeners. But uh, during Bam's rookie year, you know, Spo was wanting to get Bam on the court. Uh, quite a bit, but he had no idea what he was doing as a defensive anchor. And if you go back and look at how, uh, if you were bored enough or curious enough about this stuff like I am, to go back and look, Spo would basically not play Bam without Kelly Olenek on the floor with him. And now Olenek was, had limited mobility, and he's not the biggest guy in the world either. He's not a, you know an athlete at the position. But basically, he could verbally get Bam into the right spots and then tell him what he needed to do. And then Bam had all of the foot speed, all the mobility and everything. And I feel, thought of it as like almost like, you know, Athletic was, you know, a gamer holding a controller and Bam was almost his avatar and, and it kind of worked that way. Now, in a similar sense, if you've got a Kongwu uh, at the five, especially early in the season, or even you know, Collins against a really tough matchup in the front court, Solomon Hill can talk a teammate through that similarly to the way that Olenek did Bam in his rookie year. And that that's another uh, value of having a Solomon Hill on this team. And now it's interesting that Solomon Hill's uh, contract's not guaranteed for the full year. And, and I think that if this season goes like perfectly to plan, he plays a lot early and maybe not much late, you know, in the season and he gets, helps them get established defensively as a, as a team. But, you know, for me, I'm not going to be surprised if when Capella's sitting these first 10, 12 games or whatever, that Hill's out there just helping them stay organized uh, defensively. So that, I think, first of all, unlike last year, they can start organized. If you start organized, you can maintain some continuity of organization even when you rotate other guys in. If that gets wobbly or starts to fall apart, at least Coach Pierce has a guy like Solomon Hill that can go in and be that connector and be the organizer for stretches where you, you might need it, even if that wasn't the plan going into the game. Yeah, for sure. That all makes sense to me. Um, last question that I have specifically for you, that we can get into anything else that you want to, um, is about the point of attack defense. Now, Pierce has not announced anything with the lineup for Wednesday. Um, we saw him use three different lineups in four games. Um, they went to both Reddish and Hunter together to start the game on uh, on Saturday. I am a vocal proponent of not caring that much about starting lineup. I think it's a very, very overrated thing. But one of the questions that I get asked and one of the things that we talked about offline as well is the point of attack defense when it's Trey and Herter or when it's Trey and Bogdanovich as the backcourt. 
Um, and obviously those guys are not fantastic defenders, especially Trey. Um, they do have guys in Reddish and Hunter that can do that a little bit. We saw them play Reddish on John Morant a little bit on Saturday night um, to start with, especially. But um, is that how much of a question is that for you just individually? Because a lot of, you know, you could be organized, but at the point of attack, you're either going to be able to stop guys or you're not on some level. So is that a concern? I mean, it's obviously a concern of some level, but how much of a concern of it uh, is, is it for you if they end up starting, for instance, Young Abogdanovich, um for this season? Well, I mean, it, it's a I think it's a huge concern um, if you view like I have all along to be you know, transparent about it. That I think you know Trey and Bogdanovich are the starting backcourt for the whole season. Now, what we've seen in the preseason, maybe that's not the case. Maybe Bogdanovich does start you know say sixty to seventy percent of the games, but against some teams like the last game against Memphis, you know, Cam got moved into the starting lineup specifically to defend John Morant. Um, yeah, and they didn't uh, say that. Like Lloyd didn't say that, but that, that's very obviously what they what why sure. they did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so when you're going up against the best aggressive attack point guards in the league, I really don't see a solution except apart from maybe moving Cam in the starting lineup if he's not in there regularly. Uh, and I'll, I'll say this for Coach Pierce, if Bogdanovich moves in and out of starting lineup, if Gallo plays off of the bench the whole year, if Hunter and Reddish play in and out of starting lineup and nobody cares, everybody buys in, kudos to Coach Pierce. That is a hard yeah. thing to achieve in the NBA. Um, in, you know, that now, none of those guys are in a contract year, so that's a little bit of a different animal, but still it's a very hard thing to achieve in the NBA. So that will be kind of cool if that happened from that standpoint. Um, but but to be honest with you, when um, the uh, the opposing team's offensive alpha is the point guard, I, I think they do need to move Cam in the starting lineup. Or I mean, a lot of coaches just play the first three minutes with their normal starting lineup and just go to a reserve a lot faster. Um, that that could be a thing. When when the opposing team's offensive alpha is a wing, I think that might look a little differently. And and you know the I know you know Pierce has been talking up Hunter. As a defender this preseason, we'll see what that looks like. He wasn't a great point of attack defender last year. He was good in some other areas, but you know, if they're going up against you know, you know, a LeBron or say, you know, whoever Pascal Siakam for Toronto, if he's you know, you know, fulfilling a role like like we expect him to fulfill, I think it is going to move game to game. I think what we've seen in the preseason, and if we marry what we saw in the preseason with the way that Coach Pierce is talking about it, it might be a complete mix in a game to game approach to how they do that and like i said if that's something that he can accomplish and generate chemistry and buy-in i think that's quite an achievement for you know a third year uh, head coach in the league with a team that hasn't you know won many games so far yeah it'd be interesting i'm actually kind of rooting for that on some level because my whole stance about starting lineups is that I don't care about them much, and I, I kind of want them to do it just for the chaos. People will be re- I, I, a lot of fans will be bothered by that approach, and I don't think it would be a problem whatsoever. You know, the dynamics are always important to point out in the locker room. We'll never know all of them in the public, even if you have sources and stuff like that. Um, but I, I think it helps if they want to do that. That Bogdanovich and Gallinari both just got paid. Um, that is very helpful to that. I would say mm-hmm. um, they're both, sure. they're both older veteran guys, but at the same time, I, I don't think you sign Madonovich to uh, not start him most of the time, but you know, I could be wrong about that. We'll see what happens. And I think um, it would also help them if, uh, if Cam and DeAndre are both really good this year, that'd be a good problem to have. If they're forcing their way in the lineup more, those guys are obviously better defenders than, uh, than Herter and Madonovich are. Um, 
that helps them defensively around Trey. And that was the whole idea in the first place was to kind of draft these two guys who are, you know, defense first wings around, around Trey Young. And you saw that, I would say, a couple times in the preseason, those guys wreaked havoc for a little while on, on, on defense on the wings. Um, and Cam's the, Cam's has been the better, the better playmaker defensively in the recent past. He's better on guards. But they, they, they definitely buy Hunter. I mean, Hunter was not great, I didn't think, defensively as a rookie. But he was still a rookie and showed some signs, and I've always kind of bought that. And the team, if you listen to what they're saying, if you listen to what Hunter's saying, they all buy the defense with DeAndre as well. So... We'll see what they do there. I think the lineups will be very interesting. I mean, that's something we would talk about offline as well, is that they have so many different guys and combinations that um, it's tough to pick one or two that you love, like right now, without seeing them on the court. All these guys do, do very different things. Like Cam, Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter play the same position in a lot of ways, but they're very different players. Same with Kevin Herter like, and, and Madonna, obviously. So it's just going to be interesting. We'll see what they do. That's, that's not groundbreaking analysis for me, but I wonder how they're going to handle it now that the games count. It's a, it's a real question. Yeah, it is going to be fascinating to watch. Um, and you know, especially from the vantage point of, I don't know how much we'll learn just in the first game. It's going to take a Oh yeah, a few we're, we're going to need, we're gonna need some time. And then that's, that's not, that's not fun to talk about, but I, I can't come on the podcast on Wednesday night and just act like the entire rotation is set. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> for, for, for sure. Um, and then, you know, it, I, I feel like I would be remiss to at least not mention that, you know, Herter is probably the person who's dealing with the most competition of anybody. Oh yeah, the way that the roster is stacking up, and I just, I just have to kind of uh, shout him out for a minute and say he's, he had a great preseason. He was useful and effective in the first three games, even when before his shot started to fall, he found the shot the last game and was a big difference maker in that win over Memphis. So you know, props to him for coming in and uh, dealing with the competition and continuing to show what he could do. Um, you and I both know that, you know, a veteran guy at the age like Rondo is, is, you know, not going to play in every game. And if, uh, you know, Herder can do, um, you know, some of the things he showed in these four games in the regular season, that's going to help in every game, but it's especially going to help in, in nights where, where Rondo can't see it up and, and play his normal minutes. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see. They'll be, they'll be tinkering for sure. Um, well, Glenn, thanks for all the time, man. If you have anything else that you want to get into, we can talk about it now. But if not, please plug everything you got going on. I know uh, you uh, always post great content on Twitter, and I get to see even more behind the scenes of the Peace Group Slack channel. But uh, please uh, share <laughs> anything that you would like to with the folks that are listening. Yeah, so, I mean, most of my focus right now is uh, my own Twitter handle, which, like, two or three years ago was an almost dormant account. I mean, I have expected to get an email like, hey, are you still using this account? You know, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but that's, that's almost a quasi generational thing for me. I'm a, I'm a, a little older than a lot of the other people who were, I think, contributing in that area. Um, but no, I mean, I'm posting a lot more. It's been really Hawks related in the off season and kind of coming up into it, but in the regular season, I will pick up, you know, more league wide kind of observations and stuff. It'll still be probably like, you know, three parts Hawks, one part in the, in the bar league. Pastry hoops is where I, I do all of my writing these days. So those are the two. Uh, mechanisms if people have any awareness of the podcast I used to run um, you know my twin brother Greg's his AAU program has taken off and he's way too busy to participate with me there anymore so I don't have my own uh, home to do podcasts anymore but that was fun while it lasted so right now um, I'll I show up now and then on Kevin's podcast ATL29 um, I'm always happy to come on and talk with you um, on or off the pad uh, on or off the pod chatting <laughs> with you but if you want to, like, where do I find Glenn's work for the two listeners that are thinking, where do I find Glenn's work? 
my Twitter handle at Willis underscore Glenn and then PeaceTreeHoops.com. That's where you can go find basically everything I put out there. And you should absolutely do that. I'm not just saying it. Uh, I, I, uh, I I get to read all of Glenn's stuff uh, and edit it and do all that fun stuff. And he teaches me stuff all the time. I say that not jokingly. Uh, Glenn is a, a basketball mind that I am not. I, I do observe a lot of things. I know a lot about basketball, but I was I'm not a, I'm not a coach. I don't see the I don't see the game the way that Glenn does, and it's always very very insightful. And I, I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, I really do. And we'll uh, we'll do we'll do this again. It's been too long. I know you were on the podcast long ago. We're gonna have to make that more frequent now. So I'm asking you now on the podcast to come back again. Sounds good. You're you're always a, a great basketball conversation. So, like a like I always say, off or on the pod, always happy to chop it up, and uh, and it's even more fun in some ways when we hit that record button. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you, sir. As for everybody else, please subscribe to the podcast. Check out Glenn's work. Check out my work, and we'll see you all next time.